I'm going to go ahead and stand up and we're going to start worshiping together, all right?
praise. Come on.
Thy presence my life Be thou my wisdom And thou my true word I ever with me And thou with me Riches I hear nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only in first in mine. you go and bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. Thank you that we could join together safely and just um, sing your words together, sing these words and bring praise to you together with one voice. God, it's just such a beautiful time. And I just pray for those who are joining us online that you would just be with them and make your presence known and just that they feel comforted and part of our community. God, I just pray for everyone here and everyone on their way that they'd make it safely and just um, pray that you would keep us from distractions and help us focus our minds on your word and being receptive on what you have for us this morning. In your son's name, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. And kids, you can make your way back to your rooms. Give them a second to clear out just a little bit. You know, it's, um, it's really uh, fun. When sometimes when I'm up here, I'm getting ready to come up, maybe do announcements or a message or whatever it might be. Um, I turn around and I get 
to see all of you praising and worshiping. You guys don't get, you don't see that. You see the back of somebody's head maybe, or your eyes are closed so you don't, you know, you see the inside of your eyelids maybe. But um, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sight to see you guys worshiping and um, heartfelt and raised hands, bowed heads, whatever, you know, position you guys take in your worship, but it is a sweet thing to, to see, so. Well, good morning, my name is uh, Rich and uh, one of the pastors here at Linworth, and I want to welcome for those of you that are watching online, and for anybody that is new this morning that you're visiting, glad you could be with us, and um, right off the bat, I want to invite you to pick up the Connect card, which should be right in front of you, seat in front of you, and um, begin filling that out if you are a visitor. There's also one of these cards on our Bible app, if you're following along on our Bible app, and so if you are visiting with us, love for you to fill out that uh, information, Mark, first-time visitor, and then we're going to invite you to our Welcome Center at the end of the service. We have a little gift bag for you. It has a cool coffee mug in it, some information about the church and some of the ministries, and uh, also we invite you to uh, any questions you might have and any prayer requests, prayer requests that you might have that you go and put on that card. So, okay, well, we're going to get into just a few announcements here this morning, and uh, if you notice, we kind of started passing out a bulletin again, and there you can follow along on the bulletin there, and also um, in the Bible app. But the first one is a boys ministry night happening June 17th, and so it's gonna be from 6 to 8 a.m. here, and there is going to be a Nerf war, so uh, so dads and boys are gonna be here, play a little bit of capture the flag, and there's, you know, you bring kids together, what do you have to eat? Pizza, yes, there'll be pizza there. And then there's gonna be a Bible study afterwards uh, uh, geared towards the evening's events. So. Um, I want you to sign up for that, RSVP for that. There's information on the bulletin. And also, you can write NERF on your Connect card, but make sure you put your contact information so they know that you're coming and they know how much pizza they have. All right. And uh, along with that, as far as having some fun, we have a family fun night coming up on June 25th, 6 to 8. And this is put on by our Cross Crew um, Ministry. And so I'm gonna gather here for dinner. And then after dinner, um, the students are gonna hang out with our high school students. They're gonna play some games with them. So it's gonna on a Saturday night when our youth group usually meets on a Saturday night. Uh, but the idea here is uh, for parents to gather and, uh, and we're gonna bring some uh, kind of seasoned parents together with you. And uh, if you have some questions and answers and, and we wanna have some dialogue there uh, about parenting. So uh, once again, that's gonna happen on the 25th. It's also a great opportunity to invite in some uh, friends and other family with you. And uh, also, if you go ahead and read that, we need to bring some snacks and things. We are going to also have pizza there for you. But uh, so the information there is in the announcements. And there is a registration, uh, once again, so we know how much to bring. And so that sign-up information is in the bulletin. It'll also be on our website and you can get that uh, information there. And then finally, I wanna welcome back uh, any of our high school students that are here with us this morning. They were at Serve the City this week and they gathered with a bunch of other local churches to do some ministry outreach. And um, so we wanted to use that opportunity once, first of all, just to say thank you guys for uh, doing a great job there. And then also what a save to date. So August 7th through 12th, we're gonna do what's called Love Our City. And so as a, as a church together, we're gonna to do similar things that the uh, uh, Serve the City people did. So that's just to save the date. We'll get you more information on that soon. Um, that's all we have. And uh, I'm gonna invite Nick up here to continue our series in uh, Conversations with Jesus.
Thank you, Richo. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, as Rich just said, today we're going to be in week two of this new series we've called Conversations with Jesus, uh, where we'll be looking at some of the unique one-on-one -on -one conversations and interactions that, that Jesus had with others that we read about in the scriptures. And last week, uh, Pastor Rich kicked off the series by looking at Jesus's conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And today we're going to look at a different conversation. And that's with a man who's been uh, simply known throughout the years as the rich young ruler. But before we read our passage this morning, I just want us to think for a minute here about this idea or this concept that really all of our lives are made up and are impacted by the decisions and the choices that we make. Now, obviously there are uh, parts of our lives that we didn't choose or didn't have a say in, things like who our parents are or where we were born or when we were born, things like that. But even with that said, by and large, much of our lives are due to the choices that we do or don't make. For example, things like uh, where to go to college or whether or not to even go to college. Things like what career path we might choose or uh, to get married and if we decide to get married, who to marry, etc. But the thing that's interesting about the choices and the decisions that you and I make is that we don't get credit for the ones that we almost made. You see, to almost do something is to not do it at all. And again, there is no credit and there's no recognition for almost doing something. Um, for example, in high school, I think I've, maybe I've shared this story before, but in high school, they would bring in these different uh, recruiters from the various branches of the military. And they would often come uh, to the school and set up a large display right outside the cafeteria. And they would always have something that they were giving away for free as a way to try to entice you to come over and talk with them. And that way they could then talk you into joining the military. And I think most of you know this by now, but uh, Pastor Nicholas Shivo and I went to high school together. And so we've known each other for a really long time. But, but in high school, there was this one particular day where him and I both ended up talking to uh, a recruiter. And as a result, we almost signed up for the Navy. Now, uh, up until that moment, I don't think either one of us had seriously considered joining the military. Uh, but there was kind of this perfect storm that was happening in each of our lives at the time. Uh, first off, uh, we both had been recently dumped by our girlfriends, and so we were depressed about that. Um, also, neither one of us really knew what we wanted to do with our lives, whether or not we would go to college or what career path to choose. And so we were a little bit aimless in that. Um, but not only that, I think the other thing that was going on was that uh, the movie Pearl Harbor had just come out. And uh, I know that dates me a little bit. Um, I'm not sure it still holds as a great movie. But at the time, uh, it was a big hit. And it really, in some ways, it made looking, uh, being in the military, it made it look kind of cool. And so with all of that taken together, we were thinking, well, hey, maybe we should just do this. Like, let's just join the Navy. Now, thinking about that is obviously pretty hilarious to me now because I don't think either one of us could have hacked it, if I'm being honest. Um, I mean, look, we both get super motion sickness. Like, like when they would do like field trips to Cedar Point, we'd be like, you know, sitting on the bench holding everybody's coats and stuff, you know? Um, so we, we get motion sickness. And so how are we gonna live on a ship for long periods of time? Like it just wouldn't have worked. And so in the end, we, we didn't join the military, but in our minds and in our memories, we almost joined the Navy. However, though, as I just pointed out, almost doesn't count, 
Right, like a, a couple weeks ago, Nick and I and a few other friends and our families, we were watching the uh, Memorial Day Parade in Old Worthington. And uh, it's a great parade and they do a good job with it. And, and, and in the parade, there were all these old vets that were, uh, that were in it and they were being honored and recognized for their years of service and for their sacrifice. And, and, and so with that, like how crazy would it have been if Nick and I would have thought to ourselves, well, you know, we almost joined the Navy, so hey, let's just hop out on the street and join the parade and let people clap for us, <laughs> right? Like we wouldn't do that because that's messed up. And, and, or, you know, think about similar to that. I, often when I'm at a store, they'll ask me if I have a, a military discount. And so what if I said, well, you know, actually in high school, I almost joined the Navy. I mean, I talked to the recruiter, I did the push-ups, I got the free keychain. And so, yeah, go ahead and throw that discount on there for me. Now, again, I, I would obviously not do that, but even if I tried, they wouldn't give me the discount because again, there's no credit or recognition for decisions and choices that we almost made. Now in our message today, we're gonna meet a really tragic figure. And the reason he's such a tragic figure is because this is a man who almost followed Jesus, who almost became a disciple, but who in the end chose to walk away. And so let's look at that story now. If you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 31. Um, if you need to borrow one of our uh, chair Bibles here, the passage is found on page 846. And, and once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Again, it's Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as, they were, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. And Lord, we come with expectations of of hearing from you, of letting your word penetrate our hearts, 
Lord, it's, it says in your word that, that the word of God is, is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, Lord, would you let your, work have, uh, your word have its work this morning in our hearts? And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here different than when we came in, that we would leave here more and more like your son, Jesus, that our character and our lives and our actions would reflect your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. So our outline to help us walk through the passage this morning will be four main movements in the story. And the four movements that we'll look at are this. Number one, we'll look at an earnest question. Number two, we'll look at an exposing answer. And then thirdly, we'll talk about an unfortunate response. And then finally, we'll look at a difficult lesson. But starting with that first one there, an earnest question, look again at verse 17. Again, it says, and as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's stop right there and let's talk a little bit more about who this guy was. So this particular story is recorded in three of the four gospels in the New Testament. Uh, what some have called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this particular story, as I, I said in the introduction, has been referred to many over the years as the story of the rich young ruler. And really where that title or that name comes from is that it's a combination of the descriptions that we are told about this man from all three gospels. You see, all three uh, accounts describe him as being rich. Matthew, though, also tells us that he was a young man, whereas Luke tells us that he was a ruler. Therefore, you put all that together and you get the rich young ruler. Now, we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us what type of ruler he was, be it in the religious world or in the secular world. We're just simply told that, that he was, in fact, a ruler. And we're also told that he was rich. And, and so, in other words, what we see here is that this man was in a position of power and influence. And yet, we see him here approach Jesus with an earnest question. Now, the reason that I think it's an earnest or a sincere question is because it tells us here in Mark's account that he ran up and he knelt before Jesus. And with that, one commentator pointed out, he said, you know, in that day and in that time period, running and kneeling were actions that were typical of a slave or a servant. And so he went on to say, this, this indicates here uh, that, this, uh, that this man's deference towards Jesus. It also perhaps indicates to us the urgency of his request, right? He's, there, there's a sense of desperation. He's running to meet Jesus. He's kneeling down. You see, the reality is, is that this question is not a new one for Jesus. In fact, earlier in his ministry in Luke chapter 10, we see a, a different story. And in that story, a lawyer asked Jesus this exact question. But in that passage, it tells us that the lawyer asked the question because he was trying to put Jesus to the test. In other words, in that story, the man was not genuinely interested in Jesus's answer to the question, but rather he was trying to trap him. But with this story in Mark 10, you really get the sense that the guy is being genuine. Like he's asking the question because he actually wants to know what it is Jesus thinks about it, and he wants to hear his answer. Which brings us to the second movement in our story, and that is an exposing answer. 
Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. Now, I don't know about you when you read that, but, but to me at first glance, that Jesus's answer here seems pretty bizarre. I mean, first off, he rebukes the man for calling him good. And then he reminds him that no one is good but God alone. And with that, we might be thinking, well, wait a second, isn't Jesus God? Isn't the man correct? Isn't Jesus good? And if he is correct, why is Jesus rebuking him? Well, I think part of the reason is, is because the man here in the story refers to Jesus as a good teacher or a good rabbi. And so clearly with that, what we see is that uh, he doesn't see Jesus as God. He's not recognizing him as the Messiah. He simply sees Jesus as a good man, a good teacher. And so I think Jesus is challenging him here. And he's saying, look, you know the Old Testament. And you know that the Old Testament is very clear that no one is righteous and no one is good except God alone. And so let's, you know, stop here with this empty flattery because I know that you don't think that I'm actually God in human flesh. You think I'm just a man. You think I am just a good teacher. And so let's stop pretending here. And then if that weren't enough, Jesus then goes on to answer his question by quoting half of the Ten Commandments. Now, on the one hand, that's not that bizarre of an answer to the question because, uh, in fact, many commentators have said that that's how most first century rabbis would have answered a question like this. However, though, given what Jesus taught during his earthly life, uh, particularly in a story like the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, and also really when you consider the rest of what the New Testament teaches about how we inherit eternal life, I think if you consider all that, this is a little bit of a bizarre answer. You see, based on the New Testament, we might expect Jesus to say something different, something like, well, actually, the way that you inherit eternal life is by trusting in me. In just a short while, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And in doing so, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world. And by believing in me and putting your faith in me, you will be saved. And so, rich young ruler, this is how you can inherit eternal life. Right? Like that's what you and I might say to somebody who asked a question like this or, or what the Apostle Paul might say. And so if that's true, why does Jesus answer this way? I mean, does he actually think that, that you and I can inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments? Well, again, based on Jesus' own teaching and the rest of the New Testament, I would say the answer is no. And so why does he respond this way? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, one of the things that I just love about this particular passage and one of the things that I think it highlights is that when it comes to interacting with people and drawing them out, there is no one who is better at this than the Lord himself. I mean, what we see here is that Jesus never resorts to some sort of formula for how to engage people. He doesn't limit himself to one evangelism technique or program, but instead he approaches each person carefully and intentionally. 
You see, while on earth, I, I believe that, that, that the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, engaged people. And he would go right after that thing in their life that was holding them back. That thing that they were depending on other than God alone. And he would go right after it. And he would expose it and bring it into the light. And then he would challenge them to forsake it in order to follow him. I mean, when you think about the scriptures, we see him do that with the woman at the well in John 4. He starts off talking about water because they're at a well, and then he transitioned to talking about living water. And then he's like, hey, you know, uh, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and, and, and I would give you uh, living water. And the lady's like, sir, you don't even have a bucket. How, how are you going to get water? And Jesus is like, all right, well, go call your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, I know you've had five husbands and the dude you're with now is not your husband. Now you think about that interaction. Well, what we see there is that Jesus doesn't quote the Ten Commandments. He doesn't ask her about money or anything like that. Why? Well, because that wasn't her issue. That wasn't the source of her idolatry. That wasn't the thing that she was looking to for security and comfort. I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus does in the, in the Bible talk a lot about money. But this is the only time that we see him tell someone uh, that they are to sell all that they have and give it to the poor and come follow him. I mean, even with Zacchaeus, another well-known rich man in the Bible, Jesus does not ask him to give it all away in order to follow him. And so clearly this passage here is not setting out some universal standard about money and discipleship. But rather instead, I, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing this man's idol. You see, I said earlier that Jesus quoted only about half of the Ten Commandments. And the ones that he quoted were ones that talk about how we are to love and, and to treat our neighbor. However, though, it's interesting because Jesus left off the other commandments which deal with how we are to love and how we are to treat God. And yet now in asking the man to sell everything and give it to the poor and to come follow him, Jesus again is exposing that ultimately this man is in fact guilty of breaking the commandments, namely the first two, which deal with idolatry and worshiping God alone. See, in verse 21, it tells us here that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And maybe for you and I, we're, we look at this story and we think, man, it sure doesn't seem like Jesus loved him well. But actually, the truth is, he did. You see, when the Lord exposes and wakes us up to our idols, to those things in our lives which keep us from him, when he does that, it is actually one of the most loving things that he can do. Commentator David Garland, in talking about this passage, said this, he said, it's easy to forget that Jesus loved the righteous just as much as the sinner, the up and the in as much as the down and the out. He does not love this man for the advantage his wealth might bring to him and his movement. He loves him for who he is and therefore tells him exactly what he needs to hear, even if it's not what he wants to hear. Love challenges others for their own good. See, again, maybe for some of us, we're struggling with this story because even though it says Jesus loved him, it seems like he is being harsh with him. But you see, according to Romans chapter one, one of the ways that we know that we are under God's judgment and under his wrath is that he lets us continue on in our idolatry unchecked. 
And so in light of that, Jesus really is loving this man by going after that one thing in his life that he was unwilling to let go of. You see, I think so many of us approach Jesus because we're intrigued by him or because we think that we can somehow benefit from being in relationship with him. Certainly we see lots of people do that in the Bible. They're like, hey, he, he gave us fish and bread yesterday. Let's hang out with Jesus. And I think we're no different. But what we see in the Bible is that all throughout the gospels, Jesus in love looks at them and he looks at us and he says, hey, what's that thing in your hand? What's that thing that you're hiding from me? What's that one thing you're not willing to let go of? How about you let go of it and follow me? You see, it's kind of like uh, this YouTube video I saw years ago called How to Catch a Baboon. Now, I don't know how I found this video. I, I don't think I Googled that. It's not, wasn't a problem I was having, you know? Uh, <laughs> Like yesterday, I had to look on YouTube on how to restring a weed eater that I had just gotten, um, but I've never had to learn how to catch a baboon. But if you need to find out, you can go to YouTube for about anything. And so um, anyway, I found this video and it always stuck with me. And, and I think it really hits on what we're talking about here. So let me show you that clip now. First, he laboriously drills a hole in a giant ant heap when he is sure a baboon is watching him because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off, knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. But he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. <laughs> they were telling me when we were doing our run-through meeting that I was going to have to, you know, pay for counseling for all the little kids in here watching that. But uh, anyway, it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but I do think it highlights the stupidity of idolatry. You see, if the baboon would simply let go of the thing in his hand, he could be free. But he refused to let go until, like the video says, it was too late. And so coming back to our story here, Jesus has answered this man's question, but in doing so, he has exposed something deep inside of him. He has put his finger on the issue in this rich young ruler's life, the thing that is holding him back from experiencing true freedom. And so how does the man respond to this? Well, that brings us to our third movement in the story, which is this, an unfortunate response. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. One English translation uh, says of that verse there, it says, stunned at this statement, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. In Luke's gospel or his account of the story, 
uh, in Luke 18, it says this, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. As uh, Pastor Alistair Bake stated in one of his sermons on this passage, he said, his wealth turned out not to be a benefit, but a barrier. He approached the right person with the right question, but he left the conversation sad. And so when we look at this man's story and when we look at how he responds, I, I think we can't help but think of uh, some others in the Bible and, and compare and contrast him to those other men and women. You see, again, when you look at the scriptures, what you'll find is that God has a habit of confronting people with their idols and then giving them a chance to forsake them in order to follow him instead. The most famous and, and perhaps the most dramatic example of this is with Abraham when God comes to him and asks him to sacrifice his one and only son on Mount Moriah. And if you're familiar with the story, I mean, Abraham was an old man and he was, uh, him and his wife had struggled with infertility for many, many years. And yet God comes along and he promises him, he says, I'm gonna give you a son and in him all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed through your offspring. And so God finally delivers on that promise and he has a son and the son begins to grow up. And again, one day God comes to him and he says, I want you to take that son and I want you to go sacrifice him to me. And we see in that story that Abraham does in fact go up Mount Moriah and he fully intended to do it until the Lord intervened. And so in contrast to the rich young ruler, Abraham obeyed God even though he didn't understand it. But because he obeyed, Abraham got to experience the blessing and the goodness of God, whereas this man did not. You see, I've looked at this story uh, many times. I've probably taught on it throughout the years. But one thing that struck me this week uh, in studying it is this. Jesus basically offered this man the same invitation that he offered the other 12 disciples. Yes, he, uh, he told him here, I want you to sell everything. But he also says at the end, he says, come, follow me which is the same exact thing that he said to Peter and to James and to John and the rest. I mean, just think about that. This man had the opportunity to become the 13th disciple, to know Jesus intimately and to see him perform miracle after miracle and to witness amazing things, including the resurrection. And yet instead he chose material possessions and wealth. As one commentator put it, he said, the implication is that the man's wealth was his first love and was keeping him from fulfilling the greatest commandment to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved riches more than he loved God and he was trusting in them instead of in God. I mean, last week in uh, that conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, we saw that, that Nicodemus too was confronted and challenged by Jesus and by his teaching. And like this man, Nicodemus had a lot on the line as well. For example, Nicodemus was, uh, we were told that he also was a ruler. Not only that, but based on what else we know about him through the scriptures, uh, Nicodemus was rich. Most people believe that Nicodemus was an older man, whereas this guy, we are told, was young. But other than that, they really did have a lot in common. They both had a lot to lose in order to follow Jesus. And yet, like Rich pointed out last week, from what we can tell in the scriptures, it appears that Nicodemus was willing to pay the price. 
In other words, Nicodemus was willing to let go of his idols and those things that were keeping him from God, whereas the young uh, ruler, rich young man here, was not. And so again, the, the young man, we are told, walks away. At which point, it, the text tells us that Jesus then switches his attention to his disciples, which brings us to the last movement in our story, which is a difficult lesson. Look again at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus clearly perceives here in this moment a need to pause for a second and to use this moment as an opportunity to teach and to instruct his disciples in a very difficult but important lesson on the upside down nature of the kingdom. You see, as this man walks away sad, Jesus, it tells us, turns to his disciples and it's interesting because verse 23 says, he looked around. And some have argued that the reason Jesus looked around was to see if any of his other disciples had left and had walked away because of this interaction with the rich young man. I mean, just think about this from their perspective, from the disciples' perspective. They were probably thinking to themselves, Lord, are you crazy? I mean, this guy is a ruler, he has power, he has influence. Um, not only that, Jesus, but he is very rich. And look, Jesus, I don't, I don't know if you've peeked in the money bags lately, but we could use some extra resources here. I mean, these guys were fishermen. They knew what a good catch looked like, and therefore they were probably thinking, Lord, you let a good one slip away. And so Jesus, it says, he looks around just to make sure no one else has left. And then he says, look, guys, I'm gonna be straight with you. It's hard. It's challenging for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, the text uh, indicates just how confused and, and, and how troubled the disciples were by Jesus' saying. And the reason I think that they were confused and troubled is because in their day, it was very common to believe that, the, that rich people were rich because they were blessed by God. Or in other words, it was commonly taught and believed that riches were a sign of divine favor and blessing. And yet Jesus here is completely turning that notion and that belief on its head. He's saying, actually, guys, look, wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing or favor on someone's life. In fact, wealth and being rich can actually be a hindrance to entering the kingdom. And the reason I think it can be a hindrance is because if you're wealthy, there's a good chance that you're used to being able to buy your way out of your problems, that you have come to depend on money as a source of security and comfort for you. And yet, when it comes to entering the kingdom, when it comes to salvation, no amount of money can solve that problem or accomplish that work for you. 
Salvation is a work of God, and the only way that you and I receive it is by receiving it like a child, by humbly asking for mercy and acknowledging our need. You see, another thing that's interesting about this passage is that Jesus calls his disciples here children in verse 24. Now, one of the reasons that's interesting is because this is the only time that he does that in Mark's gospel. But the other reason it's interesting is because of what Jesus taught right before this section about the rich young ruler. You see, if you look in your Bible, right before the rich young ruler, we are told about a story where some parents are, are, are trying to bring their children to Jesus in order for him to bless them. But as you read this story, what you find out is that the disciples were trying to stop them. And so Jesus has to rebuke his disciples and, and he tells them to stop it. But then he goes on and he says, look, guys, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so certainly in calling them children here, Jesus is trying to remind them of what he had just taught about the kingdom of God. And that is in order to receive the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. And when it comes to money, I just want you to think for money. When it comes to money, how do children think about it? Well, obviously, if you have little kids, you know uh, that they don't think about it the same way that adults do. I mean, just last week, my four kids and I went out to my in-laws to help them. Uh, on, they have a little farm, and so we were helping do some yard work and some different things. And, and, and so when we were done, we got in the car, and my mother-in-law came over, and she gave each of the kids a little bit of money for helping out. And, and I don't know how he did this, but, but somehow Henry, one of our twins who just turned six, somehow from the time he was in the car to the time we got home, he had lost those $2. <laughs> Now, I don't know if it fell between the seats or if he, you know, it flew out the window or if he ate it. All I know is that it was gone and he didn't seem that worried about it. I'm like, buddy, where's the money? He's like, I don't know. And it's like, I'll get more. I'm like, you will? When? You know? Right? Because kids don't understand the value of money and, and, and often they don't even understand how you get it. Like they just think it appears, right? And, and certainly they don't worry about it. Instead, they just blindly trust in their parents that their parents will meet their needs. And so in calling the disciples children here, I think Jesus is intentionally trying to get them to think this way, to see that they have a heavenly father who looks after them. Not only that, but the other part of this passage that a lot of people talk about is, is this saying here, Jesus says, when, when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, apparently in studying this in the middle ages, someone suggested that the eye of the needle was actually a gate in Jerusalem that, that technically, you know, a camel could get through it if they didn't have any baggage on their back or if they got low enough and crawled on their knees, then in fact, they, they could go, the camel could go through the eye of a needle. And so because of that idea, that teaching went around for some years and it completely changed the way that people viewed this passage. However, though, the problem with that is that it was totally bogus. Now scholars completely reject that idea and that interpretation because, first off, there's no historical or archaeological evidence to support it. But not only that, scholars have, also, uh, have actually found that a saying very similar to this was already being used by rabbis in Jesus' day. 
And that the point of the analogy was to show just how absurd and impossible it was. You see, for someone in Jesus's day, the opening of a needle would be one of the smallest things imaginable. And a camel, uh, we're told, was one of the largest animals in Palestine. And so again, the whole point of the analogy is to show that it is impossible, which is exactly why the disciples pipe up and say, well, who then can be saved? To which Jesus responds by saying, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, what I think Jesus is getting at here with this analogy is that men and women don't save themselves. Salvation is God's business. It's his work. Whether you are rich or poor, religious or irreligious, we all come into the kingdom the same way. Like a little child, we enter the kingdom through faith and dependence on Jesus alone. Now, it's clear if you keep reading this story here that Peter is a little worried, right? Like he's looking for some reassurance. And so he chimes in because good old Pete can't keep his mouth shut uh, most of the time. And so he's like, well, oh, Jesus, well, what about us? I mean, Lord, we left our homes. We left our families in order to follow you. So what about us? Seems like Jesus is like, calm down, Peter. It's going to be all right. You're fine. You're on the right track. You are following me. But not only that, Peter, but I want you to know this. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. You see, the rich young ruler started out this passage by asking how we can inherit eternal life. And Jesus answers him by challenging him to forsake his idols in order to follow him. But unfortunately, the man, as we saw, chose his idol of money and possessions over Jesus. And as a result, he walks away sad. But the passage ends here, though, with Jesus reassuring his own disciples that they will inherit eternal life. Why? Because they have forsaken all in order to follow him. And I realize that in the world's eyes, that kind of radical sacrifice, that kind of radical commitment to Jesus sounds crazy. And yet the reality is, is that to hold on to something other than Jesus and to look to someone or something other than him for significance and security, that itself is crazy. Just like the baboon on the video, it looks so foolish to hold on to something that keeps you in bondage. You see, I think Jim Elliott really captured this well in his famous quote that he himself very much lived out when he said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, ultimately, the rich young ruler chose riches over Jesus, and yet when he died, his riches ceased to be his, and they ceased to bring him the kind of security and comfort that he wanted from them. And yet, if he would have just chosen Jesus instead, he would have found a treasure that lasts forever. You see, I pointed out in the introduction that our lives are made up by and large uh, as a result of the decisions that, and the choices that we make. And this man, this rich young ruler, he is a tragic figure because, again, he almost followed Jesus. He almost became a disciple. He almost inherited eternal life. But as we just read, in the end, 
he chose to walk away. And so to close here, I just want to spend just a few more minutes thinking about this issue of idolatry. You know, uh, uh, somebody who's thought a lot about this topic and taught a lot about it is pastor and author Tim Keller. And in one of his most well-known books, Counterfeit Gods, he defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty helpful and good definition. A, a shorter definition that I thought of this week is this. An idol is anything you don't want God to mess with. Now, that's a joke. Uh, I figured I was showing all these like famous people uh, and I discovered Canva recently. Does anybody know what Canva is? So anyway, I was like, don't leave that up there. That's a joke. So uh, anyway, but I, I think that's true, right? An idol is anything you don't want God to mess with. It's that, it's that thing you kind of keep behind your back when you're talking to Jesus. And he's like, hey, what, what's in your hand there? Show me both hands, right? It's like, ah, I can't. You see, earlier we talked about this idea of approaching Jesus and asking him, hey, what's that, him asking us, hey, what's that thing in your hand? What's that thing you're holding on to? And when he does that, far from it being harsh or unloving, it's actually an act of grace and love. And certainly when, for, for many of us, when we first came to know Jesus, I, I think we walked through a process uh, where we were uh, determining and counting the cost of following him. And in that, at conversion, there are often things that, that you and I uh, forsake and set aside in order to follow him. But with that, I don't think that that's a one and done kind of a thing. In other words, I think we're always throughout our lives tempted by idolatry. And depending on what stage of life we are in or depending on what is happening in our world at the moment, you and I may be drawn back in. And it may be a different idol than one we previously struggled with. You know, for example, I'll just say for myself, uh, in the past, and, and certainly when I first started following Jesus, money was not something that I was really tempted by or something that I thought a lot about. And for the most part, it was easy for me to be generous and to give money away to help those who were in need. However, though, as I've gotten older and as, uh, you know, I've, I've had more responsibility on my plate and, and even specifically in the last couple of months with inflation and gas prices, I've, I've just found myself thinking about it and worrying about money more than I would like. And so this week, it, it, while studying the passage, it was a, a good reminder, but it was also a good challenge of, do I actually trust God to be my provider or am I looking to someone or something else? Right, like I asked myself, like, have I lost that sense of faith, that, that sense of childlikeness and dependency on him that he will meet all of my needs as he has promised to do? You see, I think it's easy for us to, to, to think that something's not an issue in our life until we're tested in it. And then when the rubber meets the road, you find out what's truly in your heart. And not only that, but I think it's also easy for you and I to, to think that we've overcome something just because of some significant moment or victory in our past. And we think, well, look, there's the proof that, that this is not an issue in my life. For example, I came across a story this week uh, which talked about a, a rich man who stood up in church to recount how God had blessed him in remarkable ways. And he, said, and he talked about how that when he was a young man, he was sitting in church after he had received his first small paycheck at his first job. 
And as he was sitting in the pew, the, the offering plate was passed by and a, and a still small voice said inside of him, give it all to God. And at first he resisted, but, but the voice persisted until he signed the check over to the church and dropped it in the offering plate. And then he goes on to explain to the congregation that, that from that point on, God had blessed him in measurable ways and that he had become a wealthy man. And the story goes on that after he sat down, a dear old lady sitting behind him leaned forward and said, I dare you to do it again, right? <laughs> like it's so easy to rest in the success of our past or to point to some significant moment of victory. But what I wanna bring up this morning is this, maybe for some of us, is it possible that we've picked some idols back up in our lives without realizing it, right? Like we point to something 20 years ago, we're like, look, I, I laid that idol down a long time ago, right? Like Abraham, like I, I, I went up Mount Moriah, I did the sacrifice, but maybe God today is like, yeah, but are, did you pick it back up? Did you slip back into idolatry? Now look, maybe for you, money is not really something you're tempted to trust in and worship, but maybe for you, it's something else, right? Like, like so many things can be idols in our lives. Some have argued that idolatry falls into one of three categories, money, sex, and power. I think a more helpful definition is some have said that, that all idols stem from these four primary sources, comfort, approval, control, or power. When you think of those four categories, again, comfort, approval, control, or power, there's a lot of things that can become an idol in your life. Family can become an idol. Again, as we saw, money, anything that you look to to give you those things that only God can give becomes an idol. And so again, for you, as you think about your own life, what are those things that you're tempted to hold on to? Or as I said earlier, what are those things you're tempted to pick back up? You see, again, for most of us, this isn't going to be a one-time thing. For most of us throughout our lives, God, in his grace and in his love, he confronts us and he convicts us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he shows us those areas of our heart where we have slipped into idolatry. And after revealing those areas, he then once again invites us to let go and to forsake them in order to uh, turn to him in childlike faith and dependence. As Martin Luther, uh, who spent a lot of time talking about idolatry as well said, he said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. And so I just want to encourage you and to challenge you in this this week to set aside some time and to maybe get quiet before the Lord and to, to, to do like David did in Psalm 139 and, and to just pray a very simple but very bold prayer of search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And look, if you do that, if you set aside some time to do that, and in the process, the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, I just want you to remember that itself is an act of love and mercy. Because if God didn't love you, he would let you go on blindly in your sin. And yet, when, he, when we invite him to search us, it does open the door for him to reveal sin in our lives. And that can be painful sometimes. However, though, the good news for you and I this morning is like the prodigal son, the father is always waiting at home with open arms. And all you and I have to do is to wake up, to repent, and to run back home. 
And so let's pray now and let's ask the Holy Spirit to begin that process of searching us and exposing those areas of our life that are not pleasing to him. Let's pray. Father, I don't know about my friends here this morning, but Lord, I, I desperately want to follow you and to be, to, to, to do uh, what the rich young ruler did not do, and that is to forsake those things in my life that keep me from you. Those things that I'm tempted to trust in or to depend on other than you, Lord. And so God, I ask that you search me. And I ask that you search my friends, Lord, and I pray that you would bring to the light those, maybe those hidden areas of our life, those blind spots. Lord, maybe again, for some of them like me, Lord, the, the, the world we're living in has exposed uh, new idols in their heart. It's, it's created fear and it's caused them to trust into something that is not you. And so Lord, give us the grace to, to forsake those things. And to approach you like a little child and just say, Lord, I, I'm not worried about it because I trust you. And I believe that you will provide and, and look out for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you help us do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand up and join us in worship?
So this morning we're gonna do a new song. Uh, it's called Jaira. I just thought it was appropriate. It's a lot about um, how God provides for us. And so, the problem with the rich young ruler is he just didn't trust that God would provide. He wouldn't let go of his idols and know that God would take care of him and provide. And so I thought it'd be appropriate to bring in this song and just um, sing about how God always provides and He's always there for us.
already loved I'm already chosen I know who I am I know what you've spoken I'm already loved More than I could imagine That is Thank mm-hmm. you.
second um hey thank you so much for joining us this morning we do hope and pray that you were able to uh, just hear from the lord and to encounter jesus through the holy spirit and through the scriptures and if 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 the spirit brought something up during the service it could be something i shared or maybe something during the music or just you walk through the doors and the lord started speaking and you'd like to to talk about that or there's something you want prayer for please come down there'll be members of our prayer team uh prayer team down here we invite you to come down. And especially if, there, if, if the Lord revealed some area of idolatry, something that you're holding on to, I just wanna invite you and challenge you this morning, step into the light. Come down and share that with someone on our prayer team. You don't have to give a bunch of specifics. You can just be vague and just say, hey, I, I recognize this is uh, an area of my life that, that I've been unwilling to let go. Will you pray? We ask the Lord to help me. So I invite you to do that, uh, to come down. Um, to close though, let me share one final blessing. And if you feel comfortable, you can raise your hand so as to receive the blessing. It comes out of Revelation chapter one. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.